Hello, and welcome to another bonus episode of Worst Church Ever. With apologies to Billy Joel, let me tell you a story about a woman and a man. Maybe you will find familiar, maybe you won't understand. The man's name is Joshua Harris, and when Joshua Harris wasn't a man, was still a boy, he exercised oversized influence on evangelical and fundamentalist Christian culture, specifically around ideas involving dating and sexuality. You may have seen Joshua Harris's story over the last few years. There was a special on HBO about him. He's certainly been very public on social media and in other ways about his own journey from those heady days of being a young, attractive Christian celebrity boy wearing a fancy fedora covering his beautiful face on the cover of his 1997 book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. In fact, that book was so impactful that in later years, Joshua, after recanting the contents of that book and recanting really all of his former ministry, made a documentary or took part in a documentary called I Survived, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. If you don't know what this book was, if you don't know anything about Joshua or the follow-up books or his life leading up to the publication of that first book some 24 years ago or his life since then, um, you can certainly read about him uh, at your convenience. It's not hard to find his story. But if you've never been exposed to him or his ideas, consider yourself lucky. In 1997, Joshua Harris was a 22 or 23-year-old young man who had not been to college and had grown up in the home of one of the pioneers of the Christian homeschooling movement. And that, in and of itself, is what it is. I don't need to judge that or comment on that. That's not really the point, although it will play in somewhat when we get down to the nitty-gritty of why a totally unqualified young man would be given a book deal and would be elevated so quickly, not just by his publishers and his handlers, but by people in positions of authority uh, at various churches that he served, when he certainly wasn't ready for any of the roles that were given to him or thrust upon him. Now, I can't fully blame Joshua Harris for the damage that he inflicted on an entire generation of evangelical and fundamentalist youth because he was, after all, a young man. His, <laughs> his, his ability to think abstractly hadn't even fully formed yet. People older than him and in positions of power and influence should have known better. And I'm sort of beating around the bush because I haven't told you what it is he wrote and why it was important or why it was so very harmful. So I guess we'll start doing that now. I'm going to be a little bit all over the place because this is an emotional subject for me. Um, it involves reasons why I myself kissed the church goodbye for uh, part of my late youth, my late teenage years, and it also speaks to, at least in my experience, some of the worst elements and aspects of evangelicalism and fundamentalism um, that pop up not just in evangelical or fundamentalist churches. You may find yourself in a mainline church as a young man, a young boy of 15, 16, or 17, and you may find that your new youth group leaders who are super nice and outgoing and funny and clever and engaging and captivating are also fundamentalists or evangelicals or whatever you want to call them. We never can quite decide when we're in the midst of that way of thinking. At least in my experience growing up in an American Baptist church, um, if you don't know what the American Baptist denomination is, a couple of things that you do need to know. Uh, it's not the Southern Baptist Convention. It's the denomination that um, was formed when the North American Baptist body split 150-some years ago over the issue of, surprise, surprise, slavery. And people in the South became the Southern Baptist Convention. I don't know what their name was, you know, in the 1860s, but they're the Southern Baptist Convention of today. 
and the people in the north eventually came to be called the American Baptist Churches USA. And while the Southern Baptist Convention is the largest Protestant denomination in the United States, the American Baptist Churches USA are much smaller, and they're much more, I guess I would say, truly Baptist. Now, we have this caricature in our minds of what Baptists are. They don't smoke, they don't chew, they don't go with girls who do. Uh, we have a Kevin Bacon footloose idea or some other idea from popular culture. But historically speaking, Baptists, at least in this country, were meant to be an open-minded lot of Christians who believed, above all else, in the importance of what was called soul freedom, the ability of the individual uh, encountering the Holy Spirit to determine norms and practices and, and policies of faith and so on for themselves, not under the thumb of some patriarchal, uh, puritanical board of elders, always male, by the way, um, certainly in this country, predominantly white, historically speaking, when it comes to leadership. Now, I talked about the Southern Baptist Convention a few episodes ago and noted that they are an ethnically diverse denomination in one way, which is to say uh, they have 10,000 congregations that are not that are not white, historically speaking, congregations. And that's a lot. That's more congregations that are non-white in the SBC than congregations that exist, period, in the mainline uh, Lutheran denomination, which is called, uh, somewhat confusingly, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America. So anyway, the church I grew up in was American Baptist, which of the mainline churches is probably the most evangelical in the sense that it's a confessional church, there are some pietistic traditions, and there is a real emphasis on the idea of coming to faith in Jesus. There's a real sense that uh, Christian faith is something that you really can only embrace after a certain age, and so we don't baptize infants in that tradition. We only baptize people who we think are old enough to make a decision to follow Jesus. Now, what we know from neuroscience and psychology is that we probably shouldn't be baptizing anybody until they're well into their 20s, when their brains have finished forming, their frontal lobes have dropped, and they are able to really think truly and fully for themselves in abstract ways. But I suppose on one way of thinking, baptizing somebody at 14 or 15 is a hell of a lot better than baptizing them at 14 or 15 days. I'm not here to get into all the theological points or details about who we should or shouldn't baptize or at what age we should or shouldn't do these things, whether baptism is a rite of passage or whether it's something that um, should be done to infants as a sign or as a, as a mark of their inclusion in, in the family of the church. That's not really what this is about. But in a roundabout way, I'm trying to get at the scenario that existed in my church that allowed people who were very fundamentalist and very evangelical in ways that were excessive to take over the leadership of the youth group at a church that was not itself fundamentalist by any stretch. Yes, there were some evangelical values at the church. If by evangelical you mean that we baptized adults, not infants, and that we believed that being a Christian involved a decision to follow Jesus. Now, if you're a fundamentalist or an evangelical, that decision to follow Jesus is everything. And if you don't make that decision, you're going to the bad place. And it's not going to be Ted Danson there to greet you. So one of the things that's problematic, at least it was problematic in the 90s and probably is even more so now, is that mainline churches, which are the historic confessing Protestant denominations in this country that are not fundamentalist, that may have evangelical tendencies depending on how you describe evangelical, but, but are not people who you would describe as far right or as, oh God, I'm trying to think of words that aren't totally pejorative, and I don't really know why I'm trying to do that, but maybe you get the point. Anyway, mainline churches have been in free fall for a long time. And there are, all, there are all kinds of reasons for that. Now, fundamentalists and evangelicals will tell you that the reason for that is, well, they don't, they don't practice the gospel. And if you get away from the gospel, you're not going to have a church. Well, <laughs> that's, of course, on a fundamentalist rendering or understanding or misunderstanding of what the gospel is. Of course, the Christian tradition in this country, the Protestant Christian tradition in this country, has always had 
its reactionary elements and its progressive elements. It is a big factor behind the abolition of slavery and suffrage for women. It's also a big reason that we had temperance. So it's a mixed bag, right? And it's a complicated history. And American Protestantism is also uniquely characterized by um, a penchant or a proclivity toward revivalism. In other words, when your liturgical churches or your so-called mainline churches, your your more progressive churches, um, aren't seen as meeting certain hmm, narrowly defined spiritual needs, or when society at large, forget about the state of any given church or churches as a collective, when society at large is in time of turmoil or transition, revivalism, at least in the United States, has been um, a pretty reliable occurrence. And we had something called the First Great Awakening in the 1700s. We had something called the Second Great Awakening in the 1800s. And, and these things are all connected to the different kinds of Christianities that emerge in the end of the 19th and the beginning of the early 20th centuries. The Second Great Awakening did many really wonderful things like convince Christians that their personal piety meant jack shit if it wasn't tied to social action. There were different reasons for that. Some wanted to simply follow the example of Jesus. Others believed that if they could enact social change that would make the world better, Jesus would come sooner. And the final judgment would be here sooner. So even then, it's a mixed bag, the reasons behind doing this. But in cases where congregations and movements became mainline in the later years of the 19th century, early 20th century, the impetus usually was a realization, a revival, if you will, of the idea that your personal piety bound you or was bound to the shit you gave about the plight of the slave or of the woman who couldn't vote or then of the, the, the free black uh, man or woman who couldn't vote or whatever the case may have been. I'm trying to, I'm trying to, in a roundabout way that I wish was more direct, I guess, set the stage for my understanding and my experience. And this is something that I did a thesis on in seminary of how we have such different definitions in 2021 of what it means to be Christian. And it's not just in 2021. It's been since the beginning of, at least of American Christianity in this context. So you have churches that are called or that are that are demeaned as being liberal or who only care about the so-called social gospel because they value things like feeding and clothing people, um, engaging in ministries of compassion and justice, because that's certainly what Jesus talked the most about. You can see my bias is showing. Those churches are often demeaned by people who, in the whose traditions go back to the early nineteenth or early nineteen hundreds, who said we have to get back to believing in certain fundamental things because, after all, the scientific revolution is scary and the philosophy coming out of Western Europe is scary and Charles Darwin is scary and freeing the slaves is scary and women voting is scary and Jesus, Jesus makes us feel better. And Jesus must think the way we do because we're good Christians and we give money to the church and we support foreign missions. And, and by God, we know we need to send white Christian missionaries to all the places where brown people live so that those heathens can come to know Jesus so that God can love them so that God doesn't send them to hell. Hmm. And then you had, of course, the more progressive Christians who said, um, that's never been the heart of the gospel. And Jesus said the kingdom of God is here because Jesus is here. And Jesus said we need to act as though we are not just emissaries for a kingdom that is coming, but we are points of connection. We are parts of a network of a kingdom that is here. And one of our primary jobs is to <laughs> comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And so we have a war in Christianity, and we've had it for centuries, at least in the, in, uh, in the American context. So my American Baptist church growing up was pretty diverse theologically, which is a fundamental, to use that word, a fundamental feature of the American Baptist churches. The American Baptist theology doesn't demand conformity in matters of, 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 of belief, 
Yes, we have common practices in that church, but we don't require complete agreement on matters of, of doctrine. The other thing to know is that the Baptist churches take, the American Baptist churches at least, take the local autonomy of individual congregations very seriously. Yeah, all organized religion has some sort of structure which is in some ways top-down, but congregational models of church polity, of which the Baptists are not alone. I mean, congregationalism happens in many Reformed traditions, including the United Church of Christ, a big one in the U.S., but the congregational model insists that congregations are best equipped to make decisions for themselves with the idea that the biblical concept of the priesthood of all believers is real, the Holy Spirit is real, if we together are discerning the direction of our church or of the mission that we as this specific group of Christians has in this specific context, who better to decide what, who, what that is than us? Right? We don't have a bishop or a pope. And, and look, no offense to people who have bishops or who have popes. It's, it's not what this is about, but this is the theology. And it comes from a commitment um, to religious liberty, which is a foundational element of American politics or used to be or should be or must be or however you want to put that. Anyway... My American Baptist Church, like many mainline churches back in the day and now, had a lot of openings for volunteers, let's put it that way. And the churches that were growing in the 90s, the Saddleback Community Churches that Rick Warren started and, and mega churches or churches that became mega churches, those kinds of churches were of your more evangelical or fundamentalist ilk. So into that context comes people, volunteers, who have very different theological distinctives than the organizing principles of the church they're coming into. And so in that context, at least in my church, we had a young couple who were very, 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 very conservative. And I use that word almost ironically, because if you've listened to this podcast, you know that conservatism as such is such a misnomer for what fundamentalism or evangelicalism actually are. Anyway, this couple came into our church and they were engaging. They were popular. They were well-liked. And the church was a welcoming place. And because it was a place where diverse views were welcome, um, you know, people did their best to try to get along. And for the most part, did. But what was happening in youth group, which is what this young couple were beginning to lead um, was not something that really squared with the teachings of classic Baptist thought. And it's in that context that our youth group was introduced to a book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye with that handsome young boy, Joshua Harris, that I spoke about at the beginning of this episode. Joshua Harris, I don't know how he came to the epiphany that he jotted down in his terrible, terrible book. But Joshua Harris at some point became convinced in his late teens or early 20s that dating was wrong, that Christian youth or Christian adults even should only date with an eye toward marriage. And he called that concept courtship. That's not his term, obviously. He didn't claim it for himself, but he reclaimed that term. The idea being that when we, excuse me, when we date as teenagers or as young adults or even as older adults, what we're really doing is practicing for divorce because when we start dating as teenagers, more than likely we're going to break up with that person that we're dating. And so we are not practicing commitment. We are practicing uh, how to break up and that dating before marriage in the way that American culture understands the idea of dating is actually really partly what what's to blame for divorce rates and failed marriages and so on. Okay, well, I don't know how Joshua Harris figured all that out at the tender age of 21 or 22, especially having been homeschooled all his life, but he did. And he got a book deal. And here's the thing. This book went on to sell a lot of copies. And you can't really blame Joshua Harris for that. 
blame him all day long, and I do, for shitty theology and for destructive uh, sexual pseudo-ethics that fucked with a lot of people's heads. But you can't blame him for the platform because he didn't give himself the platform. He wrote the terrible book. But adults who should have known better published the book, platformed the book, bought the book, and taught the book. Other people made it a success. It should have been in the dollar bin or never even published. Can't blame Joshua Harris that some people picked it up and thought, you know what, this is going to be a moneymaker. We better publish this under our Christian imprint. What else did Joshua Harris say in that book? He said things like, your first kiss should be at the altar with your spouse. Your first kiss should be at the altar with your spouse. I mean, you can you can see all the things I'm not saying that are implicit in this warped view of human development and of uh, of learning about uh, yourself, learning about others, learning about relationships. What else did he say? Well, all that stuff, right? You get it. You get it. Here's the thing. Our youth group directors brought this book into youth group when I was a senior in high school. And up until that point, I had been, I would say from seventh grade till about 11th grade, really, really active in the youth group. And I had a lot of really good friends in the youth group. And we, we all went to different schools, but we hung out together. We weren't each other's only friends, but, but we enjoyed each other's company. We had a great time together. We had a history together and we did a lot of fun things. And then in, in 12th grade, they began to teach this bullshittery about I kissed dating goodbye. And it's not that I was offended necessarily by the idea that Christians shouldn't date, okay? I mean, that is a stupid idea. But I guess what really led me to leave the youth group was the insistence on this one narrow dogmatic definition of what it meant to be a Christian. And that if you're a Christian young person who was dating somebody that you really weren't a good Christian. And that's what I was getting from our youth group leaders. And on top of that, um, I had a girlfriend and she was Catholic and the American Baptist church doesn't give a shit if your girlfriend's Catholic. Hey, great. <laughs> we all love Jesus. We have different ways of doing it. All of our institutions are, are, are sinful and fall short of being what we hope them to be. But Catholics are Christians, right? Well, not according to my intrepid youth group advisors who said, not only should you not be dating, but you have no business dating a Catholic because Catholics are going to hell. So it was almost like being groomed for fundamentalism within a larger church context that has historic ties to the progressive side of evangelicalism, but is not itself a fundamentalist church. So it was really, really strange, and it struck me, uh, I don't know, it, it made me mad, it made me, it upset me, and I stopped going. So thanks to I Kissed Dating Goodbye, I Kissed Church Goodbye, which wasn't really, well, I think, what, that, what those youth group leaders wanted, but it was just too much bullshit. And at 17, I saw that, and they were 26 or whatever they were, 25, 24, I don't know. And they were convinced that this was this was gospel, and uh, you know, keeping in the theme with the theme of of this podcast, um, worst church ever. One of the things that we continue to uncover in Scripture is just how very much trauma there is in the stories of Scripture, and how that trauma is revisited time and time again on future generations, and the cycle is unbroken and is unbroken and is unbroken. And these two youth group advisors would say publicly, you know, that they had a lot of shame from having um, not been celibate before they were married. Or, and uh, they wanted to save us from that kind of heartache. And there's a degree to which if you're brokenhearted about the fact that you had sex with somebody that you wish you hadn't, okay, you can see a way in which wanting to stop someone else from doing that is could be seen in, I guess, a positive or some kind of sympathetic or compassionate light, right? And, you know, I, I was a teenage boy, and the expectations for teenage boys have always been, 
what they've been, right? And they've been shitty and they've been terrible. Um, and we're much more accustomed to saying to teenage girls, don't have sex with that asshole, right? <laughs> than we are to saying to teenage boys, you know, keep yourself for marriage or, or stay pure or whatever. But the problem with all of this was how closely it became tied in evangelical culture in general and in this youth group specifically to your spiritual worth. And, and the word, words like purity and staying pure became part of the language. And so all of a sudden, if you had sex or if you, even if you were just dating or even if you had just kissed somebody, right, you weren't as pure as you could have been. And you weren't as pure as you could have been for your future spouse. You had in some way failed your future spouse. The one, keep in mind, that God is preparing just for you because that's the theology here, right? And it's a theology that's so centered on this idea that like God has a soulmate for all of us and that's like not in the Bible at all. Like where does that come from? Well, it comes from Platonism, kind of, and it comes from Romanticism, kind of, and it comes from people's wishful thinking, certainly. But there's this whole theology that bubbles up around this that says God has a perfect spouse waiting for you. And if you're a man, that spouse is a woman. And if you're a woman, that spouse is a man, right? That's all part of this. Um, But God has that perfect spouse waiting for you and he or she are out there. And your virginity, your, your virginity is a gift for that future partner. And if you give it to somebody else, well... You're cheating your spouse, your future spouse, and you're cheating your future self. Now, I wish I was making this shit up, but I'm not. This is what was taught, and this, a lot of this spun out of the conversations that were initiated on a big scale by the Josh Harris book. Now, you can see all the problems with this, right? I don't have to really go into them, but, but let's just talk about one. <laughs> the idea that you're worth not just as a Christian, not just as a child of God, but your worth as a person. And okay, yeah, your worth as a child of God, right? Because you can be a child of God if you're not a Christian. Sorry to, sorry to break it to you, fundamentalists. You are a child of God, <laughs> whether you are a Christian or not. Anyway, your worth as a child of God is tied up to your sexuality and to your so-called purity. So if you're not a virgin, you're broken. And you can't get it back. You can be sorry, but you can't get it back. And God's disappointed with you. And not only that, but you've given away a sacred gift that you were supposed to reserve for this blessed other. I mean, this is disgusting and sick, right? Like, especially when you, especially when you look back at the scripture, uh, it's just not there. There's a lot of bad sex in the Bible, absolutely, but there's certainly no... Uh, explanation or 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 outline for um how to find your soulmate and you better save your virginity for that person here's the other gross part another part that came out of this was you know like humans do we start to develop these scaffoldings of theology over shitty ideas right and one of the other pieces of the shitty scaffolding became oh and by the way if you save yourself for marriage, you're going to have even, you know, you're going to have the best sex ever, which I'm pretty sure was like a, a skin flick show on Cinemax at one point, best sex ever. But that was the promise that people were talking about in youth group, that if you stay a virgin until you're married, you're going to have the best, you're going to have awesome Christian sex that, that people can't help or hope to have if they've given it up. And you think I'm, if you think I'm belaboring this too much, I mean, you need to know, if you didn't grow up in the culture, like, there were Christian musicians whose whole shtick was don't have sex. There were, you know, songs, hit Christian radio singles about not having sex. Uh, DC Talk had a song on their huge album, Free at Last, which, by the way, has a lot of great music and a lot of good uh, theology in it and, and a lot of bad theology in it, but they had a whole single <laughs> called called I don't want it and I can still I can still do the rap I'm not gonna do it but it did begin with the other night I met a girl and she looked to be so nice and then Toby Mac like name checks Olive Garden <laughs> anyway I, I I can do the whole song 
Then there was a girl, and I'll say a girl because she was a teenager, Rebecca St. James. If you grew up in this culture, you remember her. I saw her perform live at the Creation Concert, Creation Festival, which was in um, Mount Union, PA. In a couple of years, it was in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Um, and it was a big, big Christian rock festival. Still exists. It was founded in the late 70s by holdovers from the Jesus movement, people who were, were hippies, who were Christian, born-again Jesus hippies. Um, which, look at that history, because there was a lot of potential for that to be really cool. But unfortunately, mostly it became Calvary chapels, and it became uh, it became Chuck Smith, and it became people who then you know became fundamentalists in the '80s, right? I mean, the common trope is that like in secular history, right, the hippies became yuppies. Well, in Christianity, the Jesus people, the Christian hippies of the late of, of the '70s, late '60s, '70s, they became fundamentalists. They did the same thing. They just uh, maybe didn't have as much economic success, although many of them did. Um, anyway, the Creation Festival, Rebecca St. James. I don't know what her deal is these days, but her whole her whole persona as an artist was like, listen, I'm going to sing all these songs, but between every song, I'm going to tell you that you shouldn't have sex. And look, I'm not saying teenagers should, have, should be out there having <laughs> sex, right? It's, that's not what this is about. But I don't think it's appropriate or healthy for messages about sexual puritanical sexual practices i won't even call them sexual ethics to come from people who are trying to entertain ten thousand kids at a festival that's really at this point about the money and christian music industry that's really at this point about the money and a christian publishing industry at this point is really about the money and a christian youth group industry that at this point is really about the trauma of the adult youth leaders who should know better so anyway, at the end of Rebecca St. James's set, I swear to God, you know, the drums are going and the guitars are doing their final riffs and, and chord changes and everything. And I don't know if there were chimes and triangles, but if they, if there were, they were going. And you know what I'm talking about. It's that last song, that last big build up. It's that it's that big crescendo. And I swear to Jesus, she was, you know, saying, oh, sort of yelling over all of this music, don't have sex, don't have sex, don't have sex. And look, again, I'm not saying, yeah, go out and have, you should go out and have all kinds of sex. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that when a whole culture, which becomes a whole industry, where adults are making money off of impressionable kids, when that whole industry decides they're going to tell a bunch of people, millions of kids at this point, um, how to think in healthy ways about human sexuality, that's bullshit. And it's destructive and it's damaging. So that's all of the backstory behind uh, the Joshua Harris stuff. Now, Joshua Harris has since recanted everything he ever taught because you know why he grew the hell up when i was a child i thought like a child acted like a child and when i became a man i put away childish things so the first thing josh harris did was apologize because he had begun to hear you know all kinds of stories about the damage that that his book did and i applaud him for that but again as damaging as his message was to me, I also have to point out that he was enabled and platformed and taken advantage of by people who should have known better. So the first thing he did was apologize. Then a little bit later, he came out and said, I'm going to yank the book from publication. I'm going to tell the publishers, I don't want it published anymore. We're going to, we're going to stop. So when the current, when the current uh, supply of these books are depleted, that's that, and I'm done. A couple years later, or I don't know if it was a couple of months later, whatever it was, he went a step further, and I think he stepped down as pastor of the church that he'd been groomed to lead based on his celebrity. And then as the years went on, he and his wife got divorced. His wife was, her name was Shannon. His second book, which is the follow-up to I Kissed Dating Goodbye, about a year and a half after that first book came out, he and his his wife Shannon got married, and that there was a book called Boy Meets Girl that 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 shows you the right template for how to court in a Christian way to have the best sex ever and the 
greatest marriage ever. And at this point, I just want to like say a lot of Christian men, like icky Christian fundamentalist men pastors of like the last 10 years grew up in this shit culture. And they're the ones who you'll always see them talking about their smoking hot wives. It's, it's, it's fucked up. These are the same assholes who, you know, wear like the $800 sneakers when they're preaching. A far cry from John Wesley, who said, if I die with more than one good suit and $10 in my pocket, I've been a charlatan and a cheater and don't deserve to be called a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? Methodists have a lot of good stuff going on. So they get divorced, and it's all wrapped up in the trauma of everything that they taught and believed was a lie. And Josh Harris was propped up in all this by people who really took advantage of him. Should he have known better? At some point, yeah. And guess what? That point is now. And now he does know better. I guess the sad thing about Josh Harris is he only ever experienced one kind of Christianity. And so for him, he says, these days, by everything I define being a Christian as, I'm not a Christian. And I'm not, look, I'm not like, boo-hoo, you're not a Christian. I guess I'm like, boo-hoo, you don't understand yet at 45 years old that like there's a progressive way of being Christian that is meant to like do good things and not meant to shame people, not meant to make people feel like shit, not meant to give people hangups that affect them for years and years and years. And yeah, I'm not going to say anything more personal about any of that other than I stopped going to church. I stopped going to youth group primarily because of this bullshit. And I, you know, and good for me, like <laughs> not to pat myself on the back, but I made the right fucking choice. And I came back uh, to the church later. I, you know, I when I went to college, I got involved in a Christian fellowship there. And But, you know, when I came back to, to faith, I guess you could say, or to when I came back to being sort of considering myself actively engaged in a Christian community, those same youth group leaders were back at that Baptist church. And now I was a young adult in my early 20s, and they were they were a little bit older, and I was dating a girl from the church at that point. But that was okay, because they had asked if they could be our mentoring couple. And, you know, we were going to court, and they were going to they were going to be our mentoring couple and lead us into, you know, good decisions about our future and about marriage and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like 21 years old, 20, 20 years old. And I had a lot of guilt because one of the things I took away from the I Kiss Dating Goodbye, one of the things I couldn't shake, even though I knew it was bullshit, was like jealousy, like oh yeah, my girlfriend like did kiss another guy before me. My girlfriend did do this or that with this other guy before me. Fuck, I wish, man, I wish I'd listened to Josh Harris because then I'd have a girlfriend who like had never done anything with anybody. And like, she's supposed to be my property, right? And I'm supposed to be her property. That's the one egalitarian piece of all this bullshit is that like we are both supposed to be like pure. And that term pure, oh my God, what a, fucking judgmental, disgusting, gross move that is. Purity has nothing to do with who you fuck, you know? I mean, unless you're doing something illegal, right? Like, unless you're, like, a sexual a sexual assault, abuse, all that stuff. Purity is, it, it, it's about your heart, and it's about what you do. True religion is this, you know? takes care of the widow and the orphan it it walks humbly with god it loves justice it does it does justice it loves mercy kindness all that stuff it manifests the fruit of the spirit it doesn't give a shit about the fruit of the loom sorry it doesn't so josh harris and his wife are divorced and you know that's a family that's been broken up that's always a sad thing and josh doesn't feel like he can call himself a christian and to me that's sad because i think there's a way that people on a journey in life can be Christian that is actually like good for the world. <laughs> Josh's way of being Christian before wasn't, but he didn't know any better. And I'm not really trying to make an excuse, but we can't hold him accountable unless we also hold accountable the people who gave him the platform. And how accountable can I hold my uh, youth group leaders? Because they were people who were working through 
all kinds of trauma. And I say they were working through it. Well, they stopped working through it, right? They stopped when they got to a place of, oh, Jesus can take this away. And now my job is to make sure no one else ever makes the mistakes I made. But you know what? What if your mistakes weren't mistakes? Or what if they were mistakes for you, but they might not be mistakes for somebody else? What if the biggest mistake that you're continuing to make is tying our worth in the eyes of God to our sex lives? Anyway, Josh Harris. Josh Harris kissed, I kissed dating. Goodbye, goodbye. I guess there's a little more of this story. So this couple that I'm talking about, and look, if you're listening to this podcast and you know me, you went to church with me, you know what? I'm not sorry. I'm not saying their name. It is what it is, okay? I'm sorry if this comes off as an asshole judgment of people who also were hurting, okay? I don't want it to be that. But I do want it to be me saying, look, you're not ever done working through your trauma and your shit and your hurt. And when you think you found the one magic wand that's going to make it all go away, I think you're kidding yourself. I'm not saying that Christ doesn't heal. I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit doesn't lead us and renew us and refresh us. I'm not saying that the whole idea of being born again when understood in the right context isn't super powerful and super real and a key component of of, of what Christians do. But I guess I'm saying, you know, you, the guilt and the trauma and whatever else that you feel over your own shit, right? If you stop processing that when you get to the point of, hey, I'm forgiven, I'm casting it all away, and now I'm going to judge everybody else who does that same shit. See, to me, that's a problem. Anyway, the uh, <laughs> episode one of this podcast, I talk about my neighbor. And he was a pastor at a church locally that's very fundamentalist. So my mom, a bit ago, says, hey, did you see on Facebook so-and-so? And the so-and-so is are these youth leaders. Uh, they're in their, what? late 40s now I'm guessing you see they're coming back to town I said no how would I have seen that I'm not their friend on Facebook I don't need that in my life the filters are there for a reason I said yeah they're coming back he's becoming a pastor at XYZ church which is the same church that my neighbor was a pastor of I said no I didn't see that you know and I really don't care she's like yeah okay I get that that's fine just making conversation so I forget about it. And then I drive down the road the one day and I pass the church in question and I see the sign that says, welcome pastor so-and-so. And I got to tell you, I'm triggered at that point. <laughs> and then I came across some of this new Joshua Harris news and I'm like, huh, how about that? Now, if you're ever uh, checking in on Christian Twitter, and I, it's, yeah, well, it's a whole other can of worms, but... A lot of people on Christian Twitter or ex-evangelical Twitter. And if you listen to our first episode, you know how I don't like that term. But they talk about Josh Harris. And it's not just when he's in the news. I mean, they, it's a, had been a foundational experience of their young lives. And, I mean, I rolled around in it and, and I walked away smelling bad. But I didn't, I didn't like, obsess over it. I didn't drink the Kool-Aid and, and, and swallow the whole thing. But it, like... It couldn't help but affect me, or I couldn't help but being affected by it. Um, and something else that's reckless and super dangerous is when we, man, when we like tie these and we marry these standards of so-called purity to like our spiritual worth or our worth as just as people, as, as children of God. If you're somebody like me who has OCD and not in the cute way that assholes are like, hey, I'm so OCD. <laughs> no, it's like the fucking kind that like drives you crazy. When you already have that or or you have a proclivity toward that and then you start thinking, holy shit, it's not just my hands that aren't clean. <laughs> it's not just my face that's contaminated or because I slept on a dirty pillow or whatever the case may be. It's like my whole spiritual worth because I'm a horny fucking teenager 
and I don't know what to do with it, and I'm getting shit advice <laughs> from people who are exercising outsized authority and influence. So yeah, I was triggered a couple days ago, and so that's why this podcast episode exists and why it's super freaking long. Yeah, it's a bonus episode, so... <laughs> The the uh, the pithy script uh, is not what this episode's all about. Sometimes I'll talk to people who have been in ministry longer than me or people who have just been on the planet longer than me, and I will just let it go. And uh, then I finish by saying, hey, look, I'm sorry for bleeding all over you. And, I, you know, you know what that means, right? <laughs> I think some of them are appreciate my honesty <laughs> some of them appreciate <laughs> uh, the language um, anyway this shit was hurtful to a lot of people and I, I probably you know uh, there are people who I mean there are horror stories on on out there on Twitter or in on blogs or just in like in books like how this philosophy ruined their lives because it skewed and twisted and distorted actually like how they approach dating. Like, thank God I was 17 and not like 13 or 14 when this came out. Thank God I was like old enough to be like, yeah, I'm not going to youth group anymore, you know? But what if I'd been in junior high? What if I had been 11, 12, 13 years old and just starting puberty and all that other stuff? Yeah, yeah, I think it would have fucked me up way, way worse. And those are the stories of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people. And that sucks. And Josh Harris is honest about that. I don't think his publishers are. I don't think the bookstores that sold his shit are. I don't think those Christian music promoters and festivals and all of those other places that promoted those artists with that same shit message, I don't think they are. I'm going to tell you one more thing about purity culture going back to the creation festival it's a big deal festival it really was and it still is one year when i was there um probably my early 20s i was now leading a youth group talk about revisiting your trauma um but uh, i was leading a youth group we were at the creation festival and it was the last night and um, I mean, this thing draws a hundred thousand people. I, I want to say. I mean, it's 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 a lot. Maybe it's sixty or seventy thousand. Whatever. It's a lot. And it's like a Wednesday through a Sunday, I think, is what it is. And on the last night, there's communion, and um, they ask for volunteers to help clean up afterwards, uh, clean up the grounds, and, and, and things like that. And so, I uh, I volunteered to do that with a couple of the younger kids from the youth group. Now, if I was 22, 23, probably 23, some of these kids might have been, say, 16, 17. And so we volunteered as a group, you know, to go and do this with other, with other adults from our, from our team, from our church. And we're cleaning up, you know, and we're, we're, doing, we're, we're doing a good job or whatever. And Harry Thomas, the founder of the Creation Festival, a guy who, like, would come on stage between every act and, and talk to, to us and talk about the gospel and the love of Jesus and all those things. You know, he came up to us and he like thanked us for helping and we like we shook his hand and we talked about like what a great time we had at the, at the festival this that the other. And um he seemed like a great guy. A couple years later, motherfucker is arrested and indicted and found guilty of sexually abusing minors. So there's your purity culture, right? This has been a bonus episode of Worst Church Ever. I talk a lot about the trauma that we locate in Scripture and how it's revisited and revisited and revisited. And isn't it interesting if you go and you listen to the stories of Hagar, of Sarah, um, of Isaac and Rebecca, the trauma in the, this cycle of stories is sexual trauma. It's psychosexual trauma. It starts when? When Abraham traffics Sarah to Pharaoh. Abraham traffics Sarah to Abimelech. 
Lot, Abraham's nephew, offers his daughters to the crowd in Sodom to, for them to rape. Then Lot's daughters rape him. Like there's this family cycle of sexual trauma that's inescapable in the, in the Abraham cycle of stories. And then by the way, spoiler alert, Sarah, the one who was trafficked to Pharaoh, then traffics her slave girl to her husband. Oh, and by the way, Abraham and Sarah are half-siblings. So Abraham traffics Hagar, her slave, to her husband. Then she abuses Hagar. Hagar flees. God appears and sits to her and tells her to go back. He's going to take care of her and her offspring. Then later, Sarah gets upset again, banishes Hagar and her son Ishmael. All right. And then we find Isaac all grown up. And he's trying to figure out what to do with his life. And he's trying to figure out what the deal was with his parents. And he's mourning the death of his mother in the same place that Hagar fled to when Isaac's mother, because of her own trauma, continues to traumatize Hagar. And it's there, it's there that Isaac meets his wife. Wow. Do you think psychosexual trauma isn't replete in the scriptures and isn't like a profound part of the story and something to be encountered and, and, and thought about? You're not reading the Bible. And fine, you don't have to read the Bible, but if you call yourself a Christian, especially if you call yourself a fundamentalist or an evangelical and you're all about the purity culture, wake the hell up. Look at this shit. Because it's a warning. It's a warning about what happens when you wrap all this stuff together. And when you don't work through it, it just repeats and repeats and repeats and repeats and repeats and repeats and repeats. So, <laughs> screw you, Josh Harris, but also kudos to you for the moves that you've made. And honestly, there are people who owe you an apology. It's going to do it. It's been a long one. Usually bonus episodes are short, but it's midnight and I'm tired and it's been a long weekend. Had a funeral this week, had an outdoor service, hot, humid, triggered man, triggered by that sign on the road welcoming that pastor and by the knowledge that a lot of people are going to just hear shit gospel. Well, I guess that's why. I guess that's why this podcast exists. I guess that's why we call it Worst Church Ever. Don't take our word for it. But do take care. Thanks for listening.